0: And welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, Gizmodo is happy to announce that scientists have finally made quieter Velcro. Finally. Finally. Was this an issue, I guess? Well, for some, I think it was. I mean, when you're trying to do something discreetly, right? Like, you know, people are sleeping on the plane and you're opening your bag to grab your headphones. And Mm. sometimes if you've ever had Velcro get caught on something like soft or silky, it can actually pull the threads as well. So it can shred fabrics. and. Especially, and they note in this article that, like, when it comes to military applications where quiet can be critical. Oh, that having, makes sense. Right?
0: Because okay. <laughs> I was thinking, like, ninjas. Like, how many ninjas are wearing
1: Velcro? It just doesn't
0: seem like a problem. But, uh, yeah, the military uses Velcro. I can see that.
1: Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, straight out of Garden State, you know? That's the entire premise for how the one guy got super rich. He just sold his silent Velcro to the military. That's Oh, awesome. I didn't know
2: that. I mean, it doesn't mention that in the article, but I can see how that was a factor into someone going, you know... (laughs) yeah yeah well we all know what velcro is and it was invented by george de mestral back in 1941 after he was researching why burrs stuck to his clothing during a walk in the woods classic Hmm. inspiration what the hell is this and why is it okay maybe we can monetize it (laughs) it's incredibly convenient it's used everywhere but it does have drawbacks like we've noted and there have been variations made to this recipe over the years but to ensure a strong hold The hooks themselves have to be made out of a rigid plastic, and that's what causes all the damage and the noise. So that's where the research team from Wageningen University focused their efforts. In a paper recently published in the journal Biointerfaces, which is such a lovely journal name, I have to say, Mm. the researchers explain how 3D printing was used to develop molds to create flexible surfaces covered in tiny mushroom-inspired structures. And what this redesign does is it provides as much grip as the traditional hook and loop fasteners, but it easily pulls away from different types of delicate fabrics without causing any damage. And they're also made from a plastic that's more flexible than the traditional hook design, which means the deafening rip as two surfaces are pulled apart, (laughs) is considerably muted. And this is, as Gizmodo notes, is a feature that anyone over the age of 10 will appreciate. (laughs) While Velcro was originally inspired by Mother Nature, this new mushroom-like fastener could facilitate the development of, get this, animal-inspired soft robots like artificial geckos that could walk on walls or ceilings or even creatures with flexible robotic tentacles like octopuses that could adhere to various surfaces or grab items without ever causing damage in the process. So the researchers are not quite ready to commercialize what they've created just yet, but Mm -hmm. they do Mm -hmm. suspect that further experimentation with the shape of the mushroom structures and even the length of the stem could yield an even stronger fastener with little to no drawbacks.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're imagining the entire interior of your house basically being made of this material and then the little creatures can just sort of walk up around and do whatever tasks you've assigned them. I
2: mean, you know, the 70s are really coming back in terms of interior decoration and design trends. Hmm. So if we can have some kind of Barbarella future that I have been (laughs) waiting for, like I am all about it. right.
1: I have to admit that I've always wanted one of those insane shag carpets.
2: Right? That's true. You get the shag carpet with the Velcro walls. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, can, it's a good trade. Yeah. <laughs> you get a whole shag carpeted capsule of a room, and then you have your little robo-octopus vac that keeps everything clean. <laughs> like, What's not to
0: love? Let's invest in it. We'll...
2: <laughs> Next link.
0: Next,
1: Next link. link. This article comes to us from crimereads.com. And it's titled, The Mona Lisa Wasn't Really That Famous Until It Was Stolen in 1911. Oh. Yeah, Mm. which I did not realize. So Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa in 1507, but it wasn't widely hailed as a masterpiece until the mid-19th century, according to the historian James Zug, who appeared on NPR's All Things Considered in 2011 to tell the story of how the most famous painting in the world achieved its celebrated status. According to historians Dorothy and Tom Hubler in their book, The Crimes of Paris, or The Crimes of Paris, I guess, uh, no one even noticed that it was missing for 28 hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. Once it was reported missing, 60 detectives began to hunt for it, and crowds gathered outside the museum to learn if it had been located. (laughs) The painting had been stolen by an Italian immigrant named Vincenzo Perugia, a handyman who had previously installed glass cases around the artworks at the Louvre about a year prior, and he claimed that he had arrived at the museum early in the morning on Monday, entering with a group of smock-clad cleaners and workers. But it's also speculated that he might have stowed away in the supply closet the previous night, He made his way through the galleries, quietly ripping off the protective glass case that enclosed the Mona Lisa, likely a case that he himself had actually installed. Oh. Yeah, Simon Cooper at Slate notes that he removed the painting from its frame and slipped it under his smock, leaving the frame and glass in a stairwell. (laughs) So then Perugia arrives at a locked door. He begins to remove the doorknob when he's stopped. A affable plumber named Savet, or Savé, I guess, asked what he was doing, and Perugia casually told him that he was attempting to exit, but could not because the doorknob was missing. (laughs) Savé offered to help, and using some pliers, Jimmy'd open the door. Uh, So, yeah. This is, uh, this article has a lot of hijinks. I I love it. Uh, (laughs) So Zug notes that Perugia's exit would have been rather conspicuous. Uh, Not only was he exiting a closed museum, but he also happened to be out and about on a early Monday morning, an interval during which Paris was usually desolate, given the large number of people inside reeling from the hangovers caused by Sunday night parties. (laughs) apparently. You're not
0: Parisian if you're not drunk on Monday. (laughs) Exactly,
1: yeah. (laughs) So despite his odd behavior, perhaps it's because there were a few people on the street that he was able to hurry undetected to a station two kilometers away and across the river where he boarded an express train at 747 a.m. out of Paris. A bystander on the street saw a man in a white smock throw away a doorknob but thought (laughs) nothing of it. (laughs) (laughs) At
2: the time. <laughs> you know you're hungover. it's been a long night of partying sometimes you're gonna see someone ditch a doorknob you know yeah yeah, it yeah you know
1: they were partying too that's your that's their <laughs> excuse you know uh so the painting wasn't officially declared missing until the following afternoon an artist named louis brode who enjoyed setting up an easel in the museum had noticed right away that the mona lisa was gone from its display But since the Louvre had begun an ambitious feat of photographing all of their works, which required removing the paintings individually and bringing them to the roof to be captured, Mm. uh, he assumed that it was just the Mona Lisa's turn. Mm. So he asked a museum guard when it would be returned, and the photographers told the guard that they had not taken it up, and the guard returned, dumbfounded. (laughs) So when the Louvre declared that the painting had been stolen, the museum shut down for about a week. The nation was outraged. Dorothy Hubler mentioned on NPR that there had been ire mounting in France about American millionaires who seemed to be buying up European masterworks. And (laughs) conspiracy theorists Ah. wondered if the banker J.P. Morgan was behind it. Oh, yeah. So others believed, noting the brewing tensions between European nations at this time, that Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II was behind it somehow. (laughs) And uh, the far right publication Action Francois thought it made more sense to blame Paris's Jews. Naturally. Oh God. Um, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> yeah, Ugh. The painting itself had been stashed under a false bottom in the trunk in Perugia's Paris boarding house, and prior to stealing it, Perugia had hoped to sell it, but as the frantic press coverage began, he knew there was no mm. chance of making a quiet mm-hmm. deal, it was just too hot. Meanwhile, after a week, the Louvre had reopened, and a throng of people, including Max Broad and Franz Kafka, hurried into the museum to view the empty place on the wall (laughs) where the Mona Lisa had once hung.
2: I love it. It's almost like a Dada art exhibit. Like, the missing art is the art. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's it's the this is not a pipe of (laughs) Mona Lisa
1: paintings. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So on September 7th, the police arrested their chief suspect, Guaime Apollinaire, whom they believed had also stolen a number of statues from the Louvre. The Paris police had bungled lots of the investigation thus far, including not being able to match a fingerprint that Perugia had left on the frame to the ones in his two previous arrest records. So (laughs) the police were really eager for a win at this point. Uh That month, a Belgian traveler named Honore joseph Gary Pierret visited the office of the French newspaper Le Journal and sold them an Iberian statue that he claimed he had stolen from the Louvre. He claimed to have stolen another statue and sold it to a painter who was a friend of his. And when Jerry visited Paris, he often stayed with his friend Apollinaire, a radical poet who had once demanded the Louvre be burned down. So, Um. you know, there's a little precedent, I guess, for the police. Yeah, he was suspicious for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, They weren't just
2: picking on poets. Okay, all right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, after Jerry told his friend that he had stolen the statues he'd been distributing, Apollinaire panicked and contacted his friend, Pablo Picasso, who had (laughs) two statues from Jerry in his Montmartre apartment. On September 5th, Picasso and Apollinaire bagged the statues and lugged them out from his building towards the river where they planned to dump them. But when they stood on the embankment, they actually changed their minds because I assume, you know, they're artists and they're like, it would be an absolute shame to just dump this artwork. And a week later, Apollinaire was arrested for the theft of many items from the Louvre. He implicated Picasso. Slate notes that they both cried during their interrogations. (laughs) And Picasso claimed a few moments later that he actually had no idea who Apollinaire was. But without any more evidence, the police just had to let them go. So
0: they got them on all the sculpture thefts, but they weren't the ones who got the Mona Lisa in the first place. Exactly. Right. But then so, I guess they just forgave them? Because like, Picasso didn't go to jail for anything that I recall.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I think they're just like, well, these two schmucks are right? clearly guilty of something, <laughs> but we don't have the evidence. So They kind of cried, worse, so
0: it's fine. Go home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so 28 months later, Perugia struck. He attempted to sell the famously stolen painting to an art dealer named Alfredo Gary in Florence. The dealer asked him to leave the painting at his office, and shortly after Perugia went home, he was met by the police.
2: Aww.
1: He pled guilty to the theft, claiming he'd been attempting to return pirated Italian art to its home country. Perugia added during his interrogation that he had stored the painting with a friend, a student at Paris's school of hypnotism and massage named Vincent Lancelotti when (laughs) Krugia's apartment became too cold to keep the painting without fearing damage to the canvas. So at the very least, he was a thief who had a good awareness of, you know, how to keep a painting safe.
0: Yeah, he cared about the art on some (laughs) level. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, he he was an art enjoyer, also a art theft enjoyer. Um,
0: (laughs) And doorknobs. He likes doorknobs, too. Yeah, he likes
1: doorknobs, yeah. Yeah. So when Perugia didn't return to France, charges against his alleged co-conspirators were dropped as well. Hmm. And Perugia spent about eight months in prison, several months shorter than his actual sentence. Oh, And a few days after Perugia's trial in 1914, World War One broke out. And when he got out, he served in the army. So patriotic, so all, I guess. Yeah, It
0: all worked out. I mean, he <laughs> yeah. didn't get punished. We got the Mona Lisa back. We got a yeah. good story out of it. <laughs> it feels yeah. all right to me. I'm pretty I'm not...
1: happy with this. <laughs> Yeah, it all works out. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, this one comes from Salon.com. It is called The Secretive, Sweet, and Sometimes Saccharine History of Artificial Birthday Cake Flavor. Hmm. That's so specific. <laughs> it is. It's an admittedly weird thing that the food industry has just sort of collectively decided on. Like blue raspberry, even though raspberries aren't blue. Right. I mean, like there's a million different kinds of cakes and any cake you eat on your birthday is a birthday
2: cake. Right. And yet birthday cake flavor brings a very specific thing to mind, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking like a white sheet cake with sprinkles and like frosting. Yeah, and that's it. White cake, white frosting and rainbow sprinkles. Oh and my god! What it is it?
0: <laughs> But apparently, as far as food trends go, birthday cake flavor is having a little bit of a moment. Sales of the artificial flavor have gone up 29% since 2017. And the author of this article takes a little trip around her neighborhood counting all the birthday cake flavored products, including not just obvious things like cake mixes and cookies, but also waffles, coffee creamer, protein bars, vitamins, (gasps) vodka, and vape juice. Wow. So, Yeah, it's all over the place, (sighs) apparently. So she decided to dive into the question of, first, what exactly is birthday cake flavor? Mm -hmm. And second, when did we as a society decide that it wasn't just for birthdays anymore? And it actually turns out that the first question of what it is is pretty tough to answer because, quote, flavor science is a notoriously secretive industry, Mm. which I did not know. But they get very into it because there are only 700 members of the Global Society of Flavor Chemists, and most of them refused to speak to her, <gasps> citing proprietary technology and client confidentiality. Wow. Dang. One of the few who was willing to talk in generalities was Tom Gibson, who is the chief flavorist at Flavorman, which is a beverage development company in Louisville, Kentucky, that has worked with Ocean Spray, Jones Soda Company, and Balatin Chocolate Whiskey. Hmm. He admitted the term is nebulous and said, what most people will initially have in mind is an indulgent, rich vanilla, but with a twist ultimately, this twist is what will make a particular product's version of birthday cake stand out. Mm. Which kind of feels like a little subtle ad. He's like, if you want the twist, you know where to come. (laughs) (laughs) You come to the flavor man. (laughs) That's right. But he described a little more. He said, straight vanilla flavor has more of an eggy quality, while birthday cake has a stronger, more powdery vanilla flavor with an almost almond or cherry-like quality on the palate. Mm -hmm. Which, my palate, I will freely admit, not refined at all. So he describes these and I'm like, mm, all right, if you say so. It tastes <laughs> like sugar to me. But... <laughs> Another food scientist, Susie Bautista, was willing to get a little more specific. She says the aroma chemicals for the creamy note are very important. Some creamy notes I use are delta-decalactone, delta-dodecalactone, sulfurol, and dimethyl sulfide, mm. which uh, my mouth is watering. Yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, her personal favorite, though, is ethyl butyrate. Because it will enhance the creamy character of the birthday cake flavor in addition to providing a berry top note. So,
2: again, with this like fruit aspect to it. So, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I it's almost taste like it. perfumery the way that they're describing this. Cause I know that like taste mm-hmm. and scent are very closely intertwined and like how they describe perfumes, it's really close in terms of like top notes, base notes.
0: And you get a lot of that in wine too, don't you? Where they're like, oh, it's oaky Mm. with a little bit of persimmon. You're like, okay,
1: if you say
2: (laughs) so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) As far as when it was invented, the first vanillin extract was created in 1858 by the pharmacist and biochemist Nicholas Theodore Gobley. But it was another two decades before a pair of German scientists opened the first vanillin factory and began selling the extract to food makers. That largely came about because of a key breakthrough in food science that revealed that the base chemical vanillin can actually be found in lower concentrations in other foods besides vanilla beans, including clove oil, pine bark, and rice bran. Madagascar vanilla beans were still very expensive, so once they found cheaper foods to extract it from, vanilla became a dominant flavor in the Western cooking scene. Mm. And then, of course, like everything in the food industry, World War II played a big role. Artificial flavors in general got a boost because the military needed shelf-stable foods. And also, flavored box mixes for cakes became a thing. Because Mm. basically, Rosie the Riveter didn't have time to spend all day in the kitchen whipping up a birthday cake from scratch Mm -hmm. anymore. So, the familiar vanilla-ish birthday cake flavor evolved out of this and was pretty universally stable by the 60s or 70s. But the real popularity kick came in 1989 with Pillsbury's invention of Funfetti. Yes! A technological marvel that suspended (laughs) rainbow sprinkles inside the cake itself. And the article actually has, like, the OG Funfetti TV ad embedded (gasps) in it. And I'm not going to lie, I got a little hit of nostalgia. Like, I remembered watching it and being excited as a kid. I was like,
2: oh, my God, there's rainbow in it. Like It's already in. And And they (laughs) had an accompanying frosting, I'm pretty sure, that did Mm -hmm. the same thing. Oh, because the Funfetti Mm -hmm. frosting was, like, manna from heaven whenever we had it in the house because we were making cupcakes or whatever. Oh, Mm -hmm. so good. Eat it with a spoon, baby.
0: (laughs) And that really was the game changer because from then on, birthday cake wasn't just a flavor. It was the visual experience of a white cake, white frosting, and rainbow sprinkles. Mm -hmm. So the first non-cake birthday cake items didn't really gain traction until the mid-2000s, at which point it was just an explosion. Data Monitor reported that there were just three birthday cake flavored items released between 2005 and 2010. Then between 2011 to 2013, the number jumped to 17, including vodka, toothpaste, and protein powder the argument on that last one was apparently like, oh, you're eating super healthy and trying to bulk up, but you don't have to give up the birthday cake taste. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know that it would convince me, but I'm not a bodybuilder. Maybe maybe it was very uh,
2: It's like <laughs> you have the craving, but you want to be good, and so you just turn to science to at least say, okay, brain, you got your birthday cake, sort of shut up. That's right. Make my protein powder rainbow. That's what I want.
0: <laughs> and, uh, of course, by now, there are hundreds of potential birthday cake flavored items. The Author of the article counted 42 items currently for sale just in her local grocery store. Wow. Food professionals are actually pretty divided on the subject. Baker and writer Peg Alloy described it as the axe body spray of food flavoring. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Exum, a Louisville-based chef known for his sensitive palate, says he can understand why people like it, because it's a quick way to cheat on a healthy diet that basically summarizes all the flavors of processed food and brings back memories of childhood or drunk binge eating. So you know (laughs) two extremes. (laughs) Basically, it's been such a tough couple of years now that he says regular stress eating hasn't been enough. People want to stress eat something that also harkens back to a simpler time in their life.
2: Well, it's not even just eating either. I mean, like if it's in—I know that there are lip balms that feature Mm -hmm. birthday cake flavor and stuff like that. So it's just a yeah, quick nostalgia hit. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, they were talking about the lip balm as another example of like you can't eat the sweets, but you can pretend you are just lick your lips and get that birthday cake flavor. Yes, celebrate your
2: birthday every day with your lip balm. Next link
1: next link. Link.
2: Well, The Guardian reports a Del Monte $20 bill is set to sell for nearly $60,000 at auction. Hey! hey. Wow.
1: God, inflation nowadays, (laughs) I swear.
0: Del Monte's a fruit company. What am I missing?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're not missing a thing. Officially, it is classified as, quote, an obstructed printing error with retained obstruction. But it's just a $20 bill with a Del Monte banana sticker stuck on it. Oh. So what happened is bills typically go through a three printing process. So they have like one layer of printing, then they feed it through and do another layer of printing. And so it has the overprinting of the serial number and the treasury stamp and everything like that. And that's what makes it so valuable and unusual. Most obstructions will fall off shortly after printing and it'll leave behind like a blank area of paper lacking the design. So when the note was printed at the Fort Worth, hey, Texas, western currency facility <laughs> it went through the first and second printings normally before the del monte sticker found its way <clears throat> on the surface yeah,
0: somebody was bored and they were <laughs> just like i got a sticker i'm gonna put it somewhere
2: <laughs> eating a snack don't know where to put the sticker uh, whatever <laughs> um they do describe this misprint as one of the greatest paper money errors in history the highest bid was fifty-seven thousand dollars five hundred, which would actually cost the bidder more than sixty-nine thousand, including a buyer's premium. Hmm. This banknote did sell at auction in two thousand six for over twenty-five grand, and two years earlier, it was quote a bargain at ten grand when it was sold <laughs> on eBay by a student in Ohio who received it as part of his ATM withdrawal. So he just got it at the wow. ATM, getting cash, and he was like, "Oh, I bet I could sell this on eBay for something." Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, selling a $20 bill for 10 grand is still a nice little chunk of profit, Ohio student. Yeah, he
0: did all right. I mean, and that's, <laughs> that's awesome that he was smart enough to recognize this isn't this just a sticker. Rare. I'll pull it off. This is something exactly. worth
2: something. Heritage claims a world record for the most expensive banknote of its type ever sold, which was $384,000 for a 1934 Federal Reserve bill, which had a face value of $10,000. And that was in a September 2020 auction.
0: Hmm. Wow.
2: I mean, what I'm hearing is it's
0: time for me to buy a bunch of bananas and get a job at the (laughs) Dallas-Fort Worth printing press.
2: (laughs) I'm not going to say you shouldn't, but if you do, I will follow your adventures very
0: carefully. That's right. my adventures in federal prison <laughs> <laughs> next link next, next link. link
1: so i'll bump this article up actually because it is from inverse.com it's titled when was money invented a new study has the answer hey. so keeping on our uh, monetary topic uh, <laughs> the invention of currency might pose one of humanity's oldest questions uh, when was it invented and who was the creator A research team based in the Netherlands has uncovered a point in early Bronze Age history that might just have been the beginning of currency as we know it, and they used a new method for detecting evidence of standardized weights and measures, which are the telltale signs of emergent currency. So, the researchers found that up to 70% of certain bronze objects were indistinguishably the same weight, Mm. implying they are created to be interchangeable. And there were objects shaped like rings, objects shaped like axe blades, and objects shaped like ribs. Their findings were published Wednesday in the Journal Plus One. And the big idea is that while money plays a huge role in shaping our social structures historically and today, it can be challenging to trace the movement and creation of these essential tokens before the invention of ledgers or Mm. even just uniform weight measurement. You know, Mm -hmm. like how could you actually measure the thing? So, for example, estimating the similar weights of metals or other precious materials likely wouldn't have been done with any kind of precise scales, but instead by holding two items in hand and just instinctually measuring their differences in weight. The authors write that by using an approach called psychophysics, which they describe as (laughs) a subfield of cognitive psychology concerned with the relationships between physical properties of stimuli and perceptual responses to these stimuli.
0: (laughs) uh, (laughs) It's basically
1: like the ability
0: to put two things in each hand and figure out which one's heavier.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's spelled exactly how it sounds.
0: (laughs) With a lot of P's and S's. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, So the authors write that a principal challenge at this point is to take the statistical tools employed to express accuracy and adjust them in accordance to the findings from psychophysics. In essence, the team's measuring technique was to compare the weights of bronze artifacts and to see how close their weights are to one another if the weight of two items is within 10% of each other, then the researchers classify the pair's weight as being indistinguishable from one another by human sense alone, which is pretty crazy. Like, I didn't really realize that 10% is just about the boundary of what I can mm-hmm. really distinguish just by holding two things, but I guess it makes sense. Especially if you consider left-handedness and right-handedness and mm-hmm, how you feel mm-hmm. them different. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this measure is called the Weber Fraction, and uh, you can read more about Weber's Law if you're curious. Uh, W-E-B-E-R. The is that if enough of these rings, ribs, and axe blades have weights within these ranges, then the researchers hypothesize that this must have been intentional rather than accidental. Mm -hmm. And it's supported by the idea that rings and ribs of metal had little other purpose and that axe blades were already a prized item. To see how well this relationship held up in the real world, the researchers tested out their theory on more than 5,000 bronze pieces, including axe blades, rings, and ribs from more than 100 different hordes in Bronze Age Europe, ranging from Germany to the Czech Republic and Scandinavia. The most striking discovery the team made when comparing the weights of these various items was that 70.3% of bronze rings, which total more than 2,600 items, all fell within a range of 176 to 217 grams. And the authors say that there can be no doubt that at least the rings and ribs conform to the definition of commodity money. Mm -hmm. And so if you've ever judged the value of something by its weight, you'd not be unlike humanity's earliest people. (laughs)
0: Isn't that, that's what you do with your siblings, right? When you have to cut something in half, and you got to make sure yeah. that it is precisely, exactly <laughs> the. Uh... Yeah, I mean, if
1: you're gonna cut a birthday cake in half, you got to measure it in both hands. <laughs> that's right. Exactly
0: the number of sprinkles on each side. That's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
0: All right, well, this one comes from CBC Radio. Scientists from Villanova University in Pennsylvania have published a new paper examining the effects of various types of head injuries, and they did it all using eggs. Whoa. So, yeah. Huh. Egg is actually a pretty reasonable facsimile of the brain, with a harder outer shell for the skull, a yolk for the brain, and the protective egg white standing in for the cerebrospinal fluid that protects our own brains from sloshing around and smacking into the inside of our skulls. But in order to look at the fluid dynamics at the moment of impact and thus the potential damage to the yolk or the brain, as the case may be, the researchers needed to get rid of the shell. So they poured the contents of each egg into a clear plastic container, mounted them on springs, placed them in front of a high speed camera, and then they smacked them around a whole bunch and recorded the distortion that happened (laughs) to the yolks. This is science. (laughs) But uh, what they found was actually quite interesting. So the yolks that suffered a direct impact were actually the least affected. Since the white and the yolk are of similar densities, they both moved away from the impact at roughly the same speed, and the yolk quickly settled back into the center. And basically, the white did what it was evolved to do, right? It's there to protect the yolk. But when the impact was adjusted so that it spun the egg, which the researchers equated to a boxer taking a hit across the jaw, They saw a lot more distortion in the yolk, even with an overall impact that was lower than the direct hits. Because once rotational physics come into play, you don't just have to worry about the yolk hitting the interior of the shell. You also have to worry about the centripetal force warping the egg yolk and stretching it out, even if it stays entirely surrounded by egg white. And they said this has parallels in brain damage where you can damage neurons by simply stretching and warping the brain without ever actually hitting it on anything.
1: Yeah, it's like riding a roller coaster. Exactly. Like many roller coasters gives you brain damage.
0: Which... It, it straight up does. That's what the <laughs> <It's so laughs> conclusions cruel. of this are. Dang. But the most dramatic damage actually happened when a quick rotation was suddenly stopped. The inertia of the yolk meant it tried to keep spinning within the white and it became severely elongated as everything came to a screeching halt around it. It's like, mm. you know, the old saying, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden stop at the end. Mm. And I mean, like you said, roller coasters are a bad idea. Those carnival rides where they spin you in a circle, those I've are never super liked dangerous. Those.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I was looking forward to going to Six Flags after quarantine <laughs> lifted. Now I'm gonna be a little like, but my brain. I need my neurons.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and obviously it's not a perfect model model. model. But the researchers concluded that anything we can do in high-impact sports to reduce head rotation will reduce concussions in the long run even more than, for example, more heavily padded helmets. They noted that hockey helmets, for example, because this article is from Canada, have a sort of ridged shape that can catch on things and increase the risk of sudden head spins, like you catch your head on something and it jerks you around. Mm. And it would be safer if they were redesigned to be more spherical and smooth like American football helmets. So I mean, basically, it feels like what they're saying is that football is better than hockey. I know they didn't intend that. Because <laughs> <laughs> they would never. They would but, never. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, I can see this having applications in, like, safety of carnival rides, you know. If yeah. This is, if getting on one of these spinning rides is more dangerous than taking a hit to the head from the quarterback, you know, that's something to consider.
1: Well, what I'm hearing is that if I'm in an MMA fight, I want to get punched directly in the forehead as opposed to the jaw. Yes. So, maybe we can incorporate <laughs> that into our roller coasters.
0: <laughs> the roller coaster
2: where I will be getting punched in the face. That's there what you're paying going. for. <laughs> that's all right. Instead of like a height measurement, it's going to be, you have to be this swole to ride right right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) you gotta have this amount of thickness on your skull just to uh...
2: (laughs) next link
1: next Next link. link
2: well good news scientists have finally worked out how butterflies fly Oh, finally! I we guess didn't, we didn't know that. We didn't know. Uh, yeah,
1: I didn't know that we didn't know that. Cool. Please, please continue. Absolutely.
2: You know, scientists have actually wondered how butterflies fly for a pretty long time. I mean, compared to other flying animals, butterflies have unusually short, broad, and large wings relative to their body size. I mean, that's what makes them pretty, but it makes it a little weird for flying. But what experts have found is that they clap their wings together. And if you've ever seen them fly, when they're flying, they do look really different. And so what they Mm -hmm. did is they studied free-flying butterflies and in their aerodynamic analysis, found the creature's wings form a cupped shape during the upstroke. So instead of slamming together and clapping like two flat hands, the wings bent to create a pocket shape. And they thought that in doing so, the butterflies are able to capture more air between their wings, which improved the clap and boosted performance.
0: Well, and that sort of explains the like erratic way a butterfly flies, because they're always sort of like jamming up and down. And really... <laughs> But it makes sense if like the downstroke, they're pushing themselves up, but then the upstroke, they're going forward. It's like this constant zigzag sawtooth motion. yeah. Diagonals are out of their reach, but you know, they get where
1: they're going. <laughs> <laughs> it just
2: takes them a few more clap strokes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Next link.
1: Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC.com and it's titled Why You're More Creative in Coffee Shops. Ooh. Some of the most successful people in history have done their best work in coffee shops. You've got Pablo Picasso, who we just heard about, uh, John Paul Sartre, Bob Dylan. uh, Whether they're painters, singer-songwriters, philosophers, or writers, people across nations and centuries have tapped into their creativity, working away at a table in a cafe. And if remote work becomes permanent for some, as many experts predict, we may ask ourselves why when things settle down? We should bother going back out to work in public only to ostensibly isolate ourselves with our heads down, something we're already doing at home. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but putting on your noise-canceling headphones to work at your desk is actually different from doing the same thing surrounded by other people buzzing over your shoulders, and there's many ways that coffee shops actually trigger our creativity in a way that offices and homes don't. And sidebar, I don't know about y'all, but I love working in coffee shops. Uh, It's probably one of the things I've missed most about the pandemic.
0: See, I'm going to get on a soapbox and utterly reject this premise I find <laughs> coffee shops to be so distracting. I need utter <laughs> silence. I want everyone away from me. I don't want anyone looking at me. I don't want anyone looking at my laptop and being like, oh, she's a writer. No, get away. Like, don't,
2: mm, I don't want to yeah, be Yeah, I don't crazy. like working in coffee shops, but I love people watching at coffee shops. Sure. They're just like having a social hang. But I agree. From my style of working, I prefer a little bit more isolation and privacy.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And they get in a little bit into how different people. Have different levels of stimuli. You know, Mm -hmm. for me, I'm one of those people who I I don't know if it's uh, undiagnosed ADHD or what, but like (laughs) I thrive on a little bit of distracting stimuli. So the research shows that the stimuli in these places can make them effective environments to work the combination of noise, casual crowds, and visual variety, I'm feeling Jen cringe right now.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I, mean, give us... I will freely admit there is definitely something to be said for an underlying level of noise that distracts and quiets the part of your brain that's not being helpful. So that the part of your brain that's doing the work can actually do the work. There there will be times when I get in those moods. I'll step back off my (laughs)
1: soapbox a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so scientists have actually known for years that background noise can benefit our creative thinking. A 2012 study published in the Journal of Consumer Research showed that a low to moderate level of ambient noise in a place like a cafeteria can actually boost your creative output. Another study from 2019 which had similar findings zeroes in on what's called stochastic resonance. There's also the fact that in a coffee shop, we're surrounded by people who've come to do the same thing as us. It depends on the coffee shop, that's for sure. Right. Uh, But those other people can act as a motivator. And a 2016 study backed up this idea when researchers asked participants sitting next to each other in front of a computer to do a task on the same screen. Although that feels very different from Mm. what they're describing. (laughs) Uh, The study showed that simply performing a task next to a person who exerts a lot of effort in a task will make you do the same. One of the other things that is harder to get at home is the amount of visual variety. At home, often we sit in the same chair, and we look at the same four walls, nonstop. And Lee says that visual stimulation has an effect on people's creative thinking process. It's called convergent creative thinking. And Lee tried to address this himself by adding neon lights to the walls of his home (laughs) office during the pandemic. But he soon found that the wacky furnishings quickly became familiar and boring but coffee shops generally have visual stimuli in spades. People come and go, the daylight changes, the aromas of coffee and food Mm. vary. And while we tend not to take conscious notice of these micro stimuli and likely don't overtly choose to work in this location because of them, these activities prod our brains to work a bit differently than at home. But, you know, the caveat is that not all of these public spaces are equally work friendly, which I've definitely experienced at one of my favorite former working cafes. I actually ended up becoming really good friends with the baristas there because I'd go there to work every morning. And then I could never get anything done because they'd always just talk to me and I'd talk mm-hmm. to
0: them. Yeah, I think I've concluded that it's the people that's the problem, like the, the, a <laughs> yeah. little bit of noise. And even they could be around me as long as they don't make eye contact yeah. or look at me or talk too loudly.
2: Or <laughs> just be background noise. <laughs> like, if there yeah. is something like a virtual coffee shop in AR where I can be assured nobody's looking at my screen, no one's going to talk to me, no one's going to mm. ask me for anything. I can use the bathroom without having to be like, who do I trust to look over my computer so it doesn't get stolen, right. you know?
1: I guess we'll just have to pull up, like how we pull up on YouTube, a virtual fireplace sometimes. Maybe there's some <laughs> virtual coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, like a can little can coffee
0: use. shop ambience you could put into your headphones instead of music. Oh, yeah. I might give that a yeah. shot.
1: Oh, that might be all right. Those actually totally exist. There are websites mm-hmm. for coffee shop background oh yeah
2: i remember when the lockdown first started that residents of new york were so creeped out by the silence and the city noise being dampened Mm -hmm. that they were releasing like here's ambient new york city noise (laughs) like car alarms people yelling (laughs) (laughs) all
0: right well that is all we have time for today we're so glad you've joined us some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include icelandic man receives world's first double arm and shoulder transplant if the universe stops expanding, will time run backwards? And the one place on the space station astronauts aren't supposed to clean. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you want to get in touch with us, as always, you can email us at feedback di.show. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.